Hey, can we turn to Romans 11, please? If I may interrupt. I actually am a little early. We have started, I think, with Pastor Brown's prayer on Sunday morning. We've started a pretty much nonstop prayer for the victims of the Hurricane Harvey, which is a remarkably devastating storm. And so we will urge everyone to continue to pray, as I know you already probably have tonight in the prayer. Have you in the prayer? Good. And I want to also mention, uh, by way of announcement, that we have out on the tape table ways that you can contribute, if you, if you want to, to the effort, the Hurricane Harvey relief donation effort. There's ways that you can do so with Salvation Army. There's also one that Samaritan's Purse, which is Franklin Graham's or- organization, is also an excellent Relief organization, I believe it's SamaritansPurse.org, if I remember right. And you're making sure pretty much that your contributions will get to where they're going with that one and with the Salvation Army. And even though it's not a faith-based organization, the American Red Cross. So these are out at the information table, not Samaritan's Purse, but you might want to add that to your list if you're inclined to add to your prayers this financial help. So I know there are people right in our own congregation who have friends and family in that area. And in the wake and in the way of that storm, we have people in our tape groups also that we want to keep in mind. But let's have a preparation moment. Father, though we don't see the results often, we are aware that in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 19, it's possible to help by prayer, as Paul said. And we ask in this present catastrophic flooding in our nation that you will extend your mercy for the salvation of life and the preservation of life as you're already doing and that you will extend your grace and kindness in the relief effort that you'll empower the relief efforts and we give you thanks in our prayer because we know that this has been a remarkable demonstration and manifestation of Christ as there is testimony after testimony of self-sacrificing love being demonstrated, and so you are receiving glory. And this goes along with our desire that something good comes from this disastrous thing. Something good for families and for individuals as well as for that whole region. And only you can bring about divine good out of evil or catastrophe. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of helping by prayer and for the effectiveness of prayer. And I pray that you'll grant strength to our prayer warriors and to all believers in this assembly not to grow weary in the striving that goes along with prayer, for prayer is an agona. It is an arena of contention. And it's possible that many become weary In prayer, I pray that we will not faint, but as Luke 18, 1 says, not to faint, but to keep on persevering in prayer. We pray for one another. We pray for our government. We pray for those who are enduring things that are terrific suffering. 
And Father, we thank you for the privilege, which we must never tire in either, of looking into the mirror of the word, where we see the obscure but ever-clarifying image of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, reflected to us, where we experience the freedom to be transformed without trying, without human effort, where we experience the enlightening of our eyes of our heart, to be able to see a vision without which people are perishing even in our own time a vision of an all-saving Savior. So we pray that you will open the eyes of our heart. With that in mind tonight, we also pray for those in our own ministry, in our own congregation, that are undergoing various kinds of pressures and afflictions and difficulties, some of which are not to be mentioned because they are private suffering and pain. We pray that you will be with those who are privately suffering because you are closer than their breath. And we thank you for this privilege of praying in Jesus' name. Amen. On Sunday morning, I introduced the thought of walking on the mountain heights, and it comes from Habakkuk 3.19, which incidentally is a pretty good verse for people that have gone through catastrophe because it talks about not having anything, not, not having anything left, but still rejoicing in the Lord. And the prophet from whom Paul borrows the primary text verse for the epistle of Paul to the Romans, Habakkuk, closes with, He has given me the feet of a deer that I might walk on the high places, the high mountain range. And that's what we've been doing in Better Call Paul. One of the mountain heights that God has given us deer's feet to walk upon is Romans chapter 11. Now the greatest comprehension, spiritually speaking, comes from a confrontation The greatest comprehension comes from a confrontation. And by that, I don't mean an argument or a military confrontation, but a face-to-face meeting. The greatest comprehension and understanding and insight comes from a confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask Paul. We will have that one day, in fact, that face-to-face meeting, because the Scripture says we will be like him, because we will see him. The word see there means experience him as he is, as he is in himself, in 1 John 3, 2. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul writes about seeing face-to-face, Prosopon, pros, prosopon, face to face. Then, as a result of seeing face to face, knowing even as we are known, this is what we expect in the eschaton, that is, knowing God in himself, in his essence, as he knows us in ourselves, What Christians need, what people need, what we all need is for God to show us the reality of ourselves apart from grace, to introduce us to ourselves apart from his mercy. He did that with Isaiah. Isaiah's response was, woe unto me. He did that with Peter as Peter began to realize who Jesus was. And Peter said, depart from me because I am a sinful man, a man filled with sin. Once you realize that you're a sinful person, you're already being delivered from the power of sin. Thankfully. But seeing him means knowing God in himself as he knows us in ourselves 
until that confrontation after which we will forever be with the Lord. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Until that confrontation after which we will forever be with the Lord in immortality and incorruptibility, in resurrection. Until then, we have the scriptures and the spirit of truth. We have the scriptures and the spirit. Where these are together, the scripture becomes alive. Where the spirit and the scripture are together, the scripture becomes a mirror into which we gaze, not glance, but gaze, and see the up to now obscure image, but ever clearer and clearer image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we gaze, we are transfigured from one degree of glory to the next. This is the very essence of why Tetelestai Church exists, to gaze, not to glance, but to gaze into the mirror of the word and be changed. Because we have this ministry, Paul said, we don't faint. We faint not because we have received mercy. As 2 Corinthians 3.18 segues into 2 Corinthians 4.1 and 2. And so, until that moment when we see him, until that moment when Christ, who is our life, appears and we appear with him in glory, until that moment we have the scriptures of truth and the spirit of truth to illuminate them. Again, when these are together, the scripture becomes a mirror into which we gaze, as 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, and it's also echoed in James 1.25. And we see, as Paul said, as in a mirror darkly, obscurely at first, but any good teacher starts with obscurity and moves to clarity. And God is no exception in this as our divine teacher. We see him much clearer than we did. I do, at least, and I know many of you do. I see him much clearer than I did in 1979. I see him far more clear than I've seen him since 1991. I see him much clearer than I ever have since 2007 because we have been gazing. God is a good teacher. As Isaiah 54:13 says, and Jesus quotes it in John 6:45. Isaiah 54:13, quoted by Jesus in John 6:45, and they will all be taught by God. They will all be taught by God. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.9 that the saints in Thessalonica were, quote, taught of God to love one another. You yourselves, he said, were taught by God to love one another. Good teaching often moves from obscurity to clarity. At first, obscurity. Then more and more clarity until the student is brought to the totality of clarity in what Proverbs calls the light of the noonday, for the path of the just is like a breaking of the day until the sun shines in the full splendor of noonday. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, had a face-to-face meeting with Jesus, the resurrected Nazarene. He saw God clearly. 
as clearly as a man can see God in this life. Because as the scripture says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of the Father shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And why not? It was the glory of the Father that raised him from the dead after the unspeakably disgraceful, shameful, ungodly crucifixion. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God, that's the Father, shines in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus shone into Paul's heart as powerfully, Paul says himself, as light shone in darkness by God's command in Genesis 1-3. And that's why Paul said, he who said and commanded light shine in darkness has shone in my heart, showing that Paul, right up until that moment, had a heart of darkness, a heart of ignorance, a heart of blindness, like the people he bemoans, at least temporarily, in Romans 9 through 11, his own kin, his own countrymen, his brothers, his own flesh, he called them. He starts out lamenting. He ends up in the most ecstatic moment in all of the Pauline epistles, praising God for their total salvation, their eschatological redemption. For God, who said, light shine in darkness, has shone in my heart to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a remarkable passage in 2 Corinthians. In fact, we're looking really, we've been kind of centered in 2 Corinthians 3.17 through 4.6 up to now. This light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which shone in Paul's heart, Paul carried from that moment on like a treasure in a throwaway vessel, a throwaway clay pot. Ostraka is one of the words that describes that clay pot. And what's often not recognized is that ostraka is where we get our word ostracism. Paul, famous among his contemporaries, now carries this treasure, this light, in a throwaway vessel, and he's thrown away by his own people. He is dispelled and expelled from their midst at first, even as his Savior, Jesus Christ, was crucified outside the camp, outside the gate of Jerusalem. And so he carries this treasure, this light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus in a perishable clay vessel as 2 Corinthians 4 7 says now his epistles says the author of 2 Peter contain some things that are hard to understand this is written by someone after the epistles of Paul were collected so it's pretty late. Some people think it's the latest and the last writing of the New Testament, Second Peter. The author said, the epistles of Paul, in which there are some things hard to understand. In other words, they're obscure at first glance. They're difficult. They're recondite, as we could say. They're difficult to understand. But though they are obscure to us, Paul himself assures us that when we read his writings, and the word anagonosko is used, as we've said recently, when we read his writings in Ephesians 3, 4, that is, read with the veil of our hearts being removed in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 3, 14 says, we will comprehend his own insight in the mystery of Christ. Now, the word anagonosko, almost in all the lexicons I checked, means, usually means public reading. 
and it refers to the public out loud reading of the scripture. But I'm much more inclined to think that anagenasco means much more than just reading because we don't just read Paul and then say, oh, I got his insight. There's something much deeper in that anagenasco. There is a constant attentiveness. There's a constant carefulness in exegesis and exposition and study. So anagenasco cannot refer merely to public reading out loud as if one reading and we comprehend Paul's insight. It takes attentiveness over a long period of time, like gazing at an obscure image until it becomes clear. It requires repetition, as Philippians 3.1 says, and as Paul's warning in Galatians 5.21 says, I've told you before, now I'm telling you again. And he says in Philippians 3.18, I've told you before, but now I'm telling you with tears. And repetition is not grievous for me, he said. In fact, for you, it's stability. It's the way you become preserved in life's trials. So it requires that which we're doing right now as an assembly. It requires that which we are doing right now. And what we do time after time in our meetings, it requires careful exposition of the scripture, careful attentiveness over the long haul. And listen carefully to this. There is no end to this process in this life. There is no end to this process in this life. A tragedy worse than a hurricane is the removal of the believer from this process in this life. A tragedy worse than a natural disaster is the removal of Christians from the vision without which people perish in a way that is beyond simply dying. So there is no end to this process in this life. I say that as a pastor. I say that as a friend, I say that as a Christian, as a fellow believer, and I say that to people who just might once in a while think about quitting. Weary in prayer, weary in study. I read today how in Romans, it's difficult to teach Romans. It was Paul Menear, I think, who wrote this back in the 30s, 1930s. Difficult to teach Romans because it's so long that people get weary. Students get weary. The teacher gets weary. So at the end, he's just kind of reading Romans 14 through 16. So he went into Romans 14 through 16 first because it's assumed that Romans 1 through 5 and 5 through 8 are the most important and the rest are just kind of like filler when, in fact, that's not the case. In fact, the purpose that Paul wrote Romans is found in the last three chapters. The reason he wrote it, the exigency, the critical reason why he wrote it, the situational reason why he wrote it. So, of course, I'm thinking now, contemplating teaching Romans, and I'm thinking maybe it's good to start with those last three chapters just to lay some groundwork, then get to what Christians think is the fun part. But it's a long haul. Now, the mystery of Christ, which Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, 4, which we gain insight into, and we can even come up to his insight, which means we, have, we can have in this life what is basically the equivalent of Paul seeing Christ face to face. Although we won't have that completely, neither will Paul until he sees Christ face to face in his resurrection body. This is the mystery that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 1.10. And in Romans 11.25, one which I saw a very narrow view, in fact, almost a tunnel view of as a dispensationalist. I saw it only as the mystery of Jews and Gentiles in one body. That's of extremely narrow. When Paul introduces the mystery, it is the announcement that he intends to have Christ comprise all things. And that Jew and Gentile together in one body is 
the manifestation of that mystery in the present time. It's a prolepsis, the church. They're like the anticipation of this great reality. So the mystery that Paul talks about is Ephesians 1.10. And in Romans 11.25, which is where we're aiming now, though in 11.25 it's from an indirect angle. On the surface, it appears in Romans 11.25 that Paul is simply speaking of the now revealed secret that, quote, all Israel will be saved. He speaks to Gentiles and he says, you know, I, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery because without it, you're going to be conceited. You're going to think you're wise in your own estimation. You think you're really smart. I don't want you ignorant because it means you'd be arrogant. So on the surface, it appears that Paul is simply speaking of the now revealed secret that all Israel will be saved in Romans eleven twenty six, only when the pagan pleroma comes in. And that's true. Israel's not going to be saved until the totality of the nation's populates Israel, comes into Israel, comes into the gates of the New Jerusalem as John picturesquely presents it in Revelation twenty-one twenty-six. So there's no me- immediate mention of Christ there in Romans eleven twenty-four and 25 and 26 when he speaks of the mystery that he wants the Roman saints not to be ignorant of. But this is, in fact, the mystery of Christ that he's speaking about in Romans eleven twenty five, because all of the pagans, Gentiles, nations, ethne, pleroma of the ethne, all the nations, and all of Israel, pas Israel, will be saved precisely because they will all be comprised of Christ whose name means salvation, whose name is Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves completely. Yahweh saves in totality. He is Soter Panton, the Savior of all. As we're learning, and this is all in kind of a prelude to continuing in Romans because this is a very important chapter. It could be the final chapter in a series called Better Call Paul before moving into an exegesis of Romans. Could be. Or it may not be. Jesus Christ is the first fruits that sanctifies the whole batch as we're learning. He is the root that sanctifies the branches, as we'll see in a second metaphor coming up. He sanctifies the branches, even the broken off ones, whom Paul says are destined to be grafted in again. If you Gentiles think you're something, think about this, Paul said. You are a wild olive tree growing in the wild, a seed was blown there one day and hit the ground and up came a wild olive tree, uncultivated. And you, contrary to nature and contrary to everything that's natural, were grafted in to a cultivated olive tree, which is Israel. So don't boast against the fallen off branches because it is even more likely than a wild branch getting grafted onto a cultivated tree than for the broken off branches from the cultivated tree to get grafted back in again. In other words, watch how you talk about people. You may see them again in glory, all glorified. We're shocked about murder and homicide, and surely we should be, because it's a despicable sin. But we fail to remember that slander is verbal murder. And there's just as much assassination of people 
with the tongue and the lips and the mouth as there has ever been with the sword. And that's why the psalmist said their words are swords. It's amazing what Christians are appalled by while they practice the same things. And so, as we will learn, Jesus Christ is the root that sanctifies the branches, even the broken off ones. God has made him to be, for us, sanctification. That's an important, that's 1 Corinthians one thirty. That's another high mountain range. That takes deer legs to walk on that one. God, this is God's doing, Paul said. I think alluding to Psalm 118, 22, and 23. When God presents a stone of offense and he makes the stone that the builders rejected the very head of the corner. In other words, he saves the very people that rejects him. This is marvelous in our eyes, said the psalmist. This is God's doing. This is marvelous in our eyes because our eyes have been enlightened. This is God's doing, Paul said in one 1 Corinthians one thirty. God has made him, Christ, to be for us, among other things, holiness or sanctification. And if the root, and Christ is the root, is holy, then so are the branches by virtue of the root. If the first fruit, first fruits of the heave offering, as Paul uses in Numbers 15, 20, and 21 especially. If the first fruits of the batch is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And we learn from 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm glad we went there first in 20, 15, 20, and 15, 23. Christ is the first fruits in the harvest of resurrection. If Christ, the first fruits, is holy, then so are all mankind holy. Because all will be made alive in Christ. Christ is the root. It's not, he doesn't say it here. We have to infer it. We have to come to it by comparing scripture with scripture. Christ is the root. We'll see that in a Septuagint translation of Isaiah 11.10, which will be quoted in Romans 15. Romans 15 is just exactly as potent and important and powerful as Romans 5. If you see it correctly. If you see it from the purview or the horizon provided by God giving us dear feet to walk on the high mountain places. That's all I've been ma- majoring on in Better Call Paul. The high places in his doctrine like Romans 5, like Romans 3, 21 to 31, like 5, 12 to 21, like Romans 11. Like 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. Like 2 Corinthians 5, 19 to 21. Like 2 Corinthians 5, 14. We've been walking on the high places, not just to be selective and reject the other passages. We've chosen these high places precisely because they illuminate the places beneath them. They illuminate the scriptures from their position. So that's why... If you want to know the purpose of better call Paul, that's what it is. In Habakkuk 3.19, walking on the high places. Doesn't mean we don't explore the lower places or the fact that Paul wants to collect money for Jerusalem. That's one of the lower places, maybe. Promises to do so with James and Cephas in Galatians 2, 9 and 10. He does a whole lot to make that promise come true because he believes that unity can be demonstrated magnificently through Gentiles helping the poor Jews in Jerusalem undergoing a catastrophe of persecution. There's Paul's plan to go to Spain. Some think that's the reason why he wrote Romans because he's going through Rome on the way to Spain. And perhaps, and this sounds almost mercenary, but it isn't at all. 
his whole vision is to preach the gospel where it's never been heard before and to bring all the nations into the obedience of faith. And so he wants to come through Rome because maybe he can get some support in that venture to go to Spain, the Spanish mission. These are lower places. They're the lower places of Scripture, but they're still Scripture. And they're illuminated by the high mountain ranges that we're walking on right now as, as an assembly. And it, believe me, this has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with merit. It has nothing to do that we're really good students. The dear feet given to us is a gift of God's grace. It's a gift of his kindness. The insight that he gives us and grants us to, and the ability to walk on the mountain heights that a lot of people don't want to see in Paul or take the time to see. It's a gift of God's grace. Everything's grace. It's all grace. And so Jesus is the root. The last thing he says in Revelation, which is the last thing he says about himself in self-identification in all the canonical scriptures. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The root, ridza, it's what Paul uses here. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch of dough. If the first fruits in resurrection is holy, so is the universal harvest. What about the branches broken off? In John 15, they're thrown into the fire and burned by men. What? Well, in Romans 11, Paul explains, broken off branches will be grafted in again. Yes, they'll be tested by fire in A.D. 70. They'll be tested by fire at the judgment seat as all of our works will. They'll be grafted in again. God has made him, Jesus, to be for us sanctification, whether we're Jews or pagans or barbarians for that matter, whether Jew or Greek or barbarian, whether males or females, slaves or free, all humankind Christ has been made to be sanctification for us. God, by his glory, which has raised Jesus from the dead, has made him, the risen Christ, to be for us sanctification. That is holiness. Wisdom righteousness or deliverance and redemption an apocalyptic term apolutrosis universal redemption this is God's doing salvation is of the Lord this is God's doing not man's and it is marvelous in our eyes this is the mystery of Christ we will only know it fully when we see him. Prosopon, pros, prosopon, face to face. When we see him as he is in himself, or as some theologians like to say, when we see him in his essence, or as Thomas Aquinas said, in the beatific vision, when we see God. And we will, because blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, and our hearts are purified by the faithfulness of Messiah Jesus. Acts fifteen eleven. So, when we see him with our own eyes, and I love the way Job put it in John 19, or Job 19, 25 to 26, my own eyes will see my kinsman redeemer, Ga'al, my own eyes will see him as he stands as the last man standing when he stands at the last on the dust of Adam's ontology, on the dust of Adam's ontology. My eyes will see him and not, I will see him not with the eyes of another, not with the eyes of someone telling me he has seen him, not with the eyes of Paul who saw him. I will see him with my eyes and not the eyes of another. I know that my kinsman redeemer is living and that he will stand at last or stand as the last, the last Adam 
on the dust, not the earth, the dust of the earth. He will stand on the old Adam, the Adamic ontology under slavery to sin. And my eyes will see God. My own eyes. So we will know this mystery of Christ when we see him face to face, when we see him as it is in himself, when he see him with, when we see him with our own eyes and believe the scripture, every eye will see him. That means everybody sees him with their own eyes, not with the eyes of the prophets who tell us about their seeing of him, not with the eyes of the apostles who tell us about their seeing of him. Our own eyes will see him. Not with the eyes of human teachers and human mentors. In fact, shockingly and beautifully, Isaiah 30, 20 says that our, our, our own eyes will see our divine teacher. The best translations capitalize the word teacher because it's God, our teacher. They shall all be taught of God. And when Jesus talks about all, it's a big picture. It's not all Jews. It's not all nations. It's all nations plus all Jews. So as Isaiah 30:20 says, quote, "Your teacher will not hide himself any longer." Right now, our divine teacher does hide himself because there is something remarkable about going from obscurity to clarity. Your teacher, capital T-E-A-C-H-E-R in the best translations, will not hide himself any longer. Your eyes will see your teacher. And again, as Job 19, 25 to 27 says, you see, if you're not a note taker, you might at least take down the scripture references tonight because you could chain these things together and be absolutely stunningly astounded by the scriptures. Job 19, 25 to 27 compared to Isaiah 30, 20, because there Job says, from my flesh, I shall see God. Whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not by another's eyes. When we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is in himself. It takes resurrection. To enable us to see the beatific vision, the vision that beatifies, that beautifies, that glorifies the beholder. We will see our teacher. And we will see God because our hearts will have been purified by Messiah's fidelity. And by the faith that the Spirit elicits in us by grace. Now in Better Call Paul, see tonight what I'm doing is before just going back into the exegesis, I'm giving you the reason for this whole series. This is the 97th increment. In Better Call Paul, we have been given the feet of a deer. And in that family, there may be also the ram or the mountain goat or the antelope. To be able to walk on the mountain heights of Paul's epistles, places like Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, Galatians 1, 4, and then Galatians 3, 1 to 29, which we looked at, Colossians 1, 15 to 20 especially 20, the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and earth rooted in the blood of Christ's cross, the universal impact of his cross. Places, high places like Romans three twenty-one to 31, where we find the essence of the gospel. Romans 5, 1 to 11, the high point of which is God giving his son and Christ dying for the ungodly. 
He dies for the ungodly because he rectifies the ungodly. And he was handed over because of our transgressions and raised up for our rectification. Put Romans 4.5 together with 4.25 and then 5.6 and 5.8 and be astounded by what the Spirit will teach you. You may get a glimpse of your teacher. High places like Romans 5.12 to 21. Like 1 Corinthians 2.2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As first, the high place of 1 Corinthians 5.7, Christ our Paschal Lamb has been killed. 15.22 to 28, in Christ all will be made alive. And in the end, Christ will commit himself to the Father and all that he has conquered, which is everything, so that God may be all in all. High places, mountain heights. Not just because we want to major only on the high places, but because they so beautifully illuminate all the scriptures and everything underneath. 2 Corinthians 5:14 to 21, Philippians 2:5 through 11. These are the mountain heights. And I wasn't conscious of just exploring them at the beginning, but now looking back from the heights that God has brought us, I see that's what he was doing. He gave us dear feet to walk on the mountain heights in Paul because they illuminate the other scriptures from their climactic positions. Not only the rest of Paul's epistles, the rest of the scriptures, which Paul's epistles are nothing without. They reveal an all-saving Savior. And like John's gospel and Rev the book, Paul's epistles present to the view of the enlightened eyes of our heart a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. And the cross of Christ in its depth and in its universal reconciling impact. This is a vision without which people in our generation, believer and unbeliever, are perishing, falling apart, losing restraint. Losing purpose, losing true north, losing orientation, losing a personal sense of destiny, unable to convey it to their children. They're perishing without it. Even with it, we certainly are afflicted and certainly undergo much adversity. But these are the adversities that the apostles were aware of. These are the adversities that you go through when you are being enlightened, not when you're trying to escape the enlightenment. When people quit the process and escape the adversity of the process, things seem to go very smoothly for them, and they're very happy until the bottom drops out. And it does. And underneath are the everlasting arms, not the fires of hell. Deuteronomy 33, 27. And Romans 11 is among these mountain heights. It may be one of the greatest, the peak of which is 1132. All I do now is say the numbers in my mind, 1132, and I know what I'm talking about. Just like in John 20, 31, I would, or John 3, 17, God sent his son not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. I just have to say 317. Or now 319 is Habakkuk plus Ephesians, the fullness of God in Ephesians 319. So in the last couple minutes, let's look at where we are in Romans 11, 12, and recap something. After having given you what I would call a pastoral introduction, a pastoral introduction, we may now proceed with our reading. Notice what I said, reading of Paul in Romans 11. We have this so far, the third rhetorical question asked by Paul in Romans 11, starting here in verse 7, what then? Israel did not find 
what it was looking for. This summarizes the history of Israel all the way up to that point. But the elect, meaning the elect of Israel, obtained it. The rest were hardened. So Israel is divided up here as the elect and the rest. The elect have found it, but they were given by grace. It's an election by grace. The rest were hardened. Just as it stands written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. You could say a spirit of torpor. Eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear, even to this day. And you say, how cruel of God to do that. God did that. God gave them that. This is all aiming at Romans 11.32. He imprisoned everybody in disobedience. In order to have mercy upon all. So he blinds their eyes and gives them a spirit of anesthesia. There's nothing wrong with anesthesia. The only thing that Adam ever had given to him by grace was when he was asleep. God took from his rib the woman and brought the woman to him. But it wasn't Adam going out and checking all the dating online services. God knocked him out first. And then brought the woman out of himself. God does the greatest things for us when we're asleep. The kingdom of God is like a man planting a seed and then he goes to sleep and it grows. He doesn't know how. He's not even aware of it. It's growing. It's growing. We ought to take a lesson from that. It takes courage to stand back and do nothing and watch the salvation of the Lord in Exodus 14, 14. It takes courage to stand. Why? Because people will accuse you of idleness, of indifference, of lacking love even. But you're standing and watching. As Habakkuk said, I will stand on my watch. And Moses said, now stand This is your job, and watch the salvation of the Lord. So they stand. Well, what's going to happen? All of a sudden, an east wind comes and blows a canyon right through the Red Sea and even sucks up the mud, the water from the mud on the bottom, so they walk across, and their feet don't even get wet on the bottoms. Because they stood and they watched. And there's also a little nuance there that also includes and shut up. Because they were complaining. And you brought us out here to kill us all, didn't you? So, God gave them. God has given them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that do not see, ears that do not hear, even to this day. He quotes Deuteronomy 29.4 from Torah, Isaiah 29.10 from the prophets. Moreover, David says, adding the Psalms, let their table, the table is trapeza. That means their very liturgy, worship, cultus, all of, all of their religiosity itself. Let their table become a snare and a net and a trap and a means of punishment to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see And their backs be continually, not forever, as we saw Sunday, not forever, but continually bent over, Psalm 69, 22, 23. Rhetorical question four. So I, Paul, say they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Some interpreters, especially in Western Europe, in the 20s and 30s of the last century said, yes, they have. They've tripped to fall down permanently. Permanently. Who? The Jews. But they fail to recognize that Paul says, no, they didn't. He uses two words here, ptio and pipto. They didn't trip to fall down permanently, did they? He said, of course not. On the contrary, by their transgression... Salvation has come to the pagans (laughs) to provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, what does it mean he provokes Israel to jealousy? Israel says, Paul's a Jew. What's he talking to them for? And then 
Paul's a Jew. Was he talking to them about? And they overhear it, and some are saved. There's a lot about overhearing. There's a lot of epistles that Paul wrote to certain areas, but they were intended to be overheard by other areas. And they were. Other cities heard. They overheard them. So he says, everything is salvific here. Everything is aimed toward salvation. But if they're misstep, he calls it, he goes from tripping to a misstep to transgression. He keeps going back and forth, just like he did with Adam. Adam's transgression. Adam's misstep. Adam's sin, Christ's obedience, Christ's right step, his correct step, his act of righteousness. Here he now says their misstep, if their misstep is bringing riches to the world, and he's speaking of the riches in Romans 10:12 that God is rich to all those who call upon him to all those in whom he elicits faith these are the exceeding riches of God in Christ in Ephesians 3:8 part of the mystery if their misstep is bringing the riches of Christ the inexhaustible riches in Christ Jesus to the world and their defeat riches for the gentiles or the pagans now he goes into the a fortiori. How much more will their fullness be? Whose fullness? Israel's fullness. Israel's total salvation. What do you think that will do to the world? What do you think that's going to mean? He's assuming their pleroma. He assumes their eschatological total acceptance here. The opposite of the way interpreters have stopped. They got to a precipice on the mountain. They said, I'm too tired to go any further. Where God intends for us to throw a rope and hook on to the top and keep climbing. And we'll start seeing things. We'll see an eschatological salvation. So Romans 11.13 tracks to run on for tomorrow night and in the future. But now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Now later he's going to call these Gentiles the strong You'll, in, you'll see this interpreted. There's six, really five groups in Rome. There's not just one big church, and they all meet in a big gymnasium somewhere or a big convention center. There are many congregations, and they hate each other. They're condemning each other. They're judging each other. There's groups that are so-called overscrupulous Jews that have come back after the Claudian expulsion and after A.D. 49. There are... Gentiles who flaunt their liberty. There are also Pauls, type people like Paul who are the strong, but they don't despise the weak. And they are manifestors of Christ. But there's all kinds of groups there. And so one of my views about Romans is that the intent of Paul is unity. Not only among the churches in Rome, but among all the churches universally. So, in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Now he's going he's to talk to the, he's like he's got two kids in the room. He told off one. He said, you can go now. And the other one's standing there going, uh, okay. Now I'm going to talk to you. A young man who was led to Christ in Vermont way back in the 70s, and I'll close with this. He was a friend of my sister's, and then he, he became a friend of mine. And he actually lived in the house of my parents. They had a little apartment on the side for 50 a month. Boy, if that was still for rent, I, you know. But, uh, but uh, he started reading the scriptures, and he would read them, and then we'd talk, and we'd have a good time, and then he'd say, well, I got to go get yelled at by Paul. Because he would read the epistles, and he felt like he was being yelled at by Paul. Which, in, a, in, in one sense, he's yelling at the Gentiles. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm honoring my ministry, he says, in doing this. In other words, I have not only the right, not only the prerogative, but the responsibility to talk to you people, you folks. You fellow believers of mine, my brothers, my beloved, I have the, I'm honoring my ministry in doing so. 
He didn't plant the church in Rome. And it's his policy to always preach the gospel where it hasn't been preached before. He didn't water it even, come by and water it like Apollos watered Corinth. But he has the office of apostle to all the Gentiles, so he has the right to speak to them. He has the right to speak to us. That's why I thought it would be good to call Paul and put him on speaker, which is this whole series has been doing. It's going to attempt to put Paul on speaker. Now I'm speaking to you, he said. Because it's his purpose, as Romans 1.5 says, to bring about the obedience of faith, which is ultimately participation in Messiah's fidelity in all the nations. So we're going to take it up from there next time. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And I, I believe that you have led in this way, in this series, and even given the title to it. And I pray that tonight the purpose of this series will be made ever more clear. Perhaps it was obscure in the beginning as it ought to be. But I pray that it will be eminently clear to all who receive this message tonight. And as I pray for the offering tonight, I want you to remember that you have the prerogative and the, you have the choice also of allotting whatever funds you intended to give to this ministry to the victims of the flood.